we are continuing our study on Hebrews called Jesus, the mediator of a new testament or a new covenant. And this is teaching number 63. And it's entitled Nine Concluding Remarks by the Writer of Hebrews. And it comes out of Hebrews 13, 18 through 25. And we're going to start these concluding remarks with Hebrews 13, 18, where the writer says, this is remark number one, the writer says, pray for us. The way I take this as the writer is, is requesting prayer from the Jewish assembly that he's writing to these Jewish believers, it seems like those who are the recipients of this letter or this writing knows the writer. Even though we don't know who the writer is, it seems like those who were receiving the letter knew who the writer was and also knew who the writer was with. Because the writer is saying, pray for us. So they would have known who they're praying for. They would have known the names of the us. Very likely could have been a group of people who left the church on a missionary journey. And we find something in Hebrews 13, verse 19. The writer says, I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. There is a relationship between the writer of Hebrews and those who are receiving this letter, because if we look at this phrase, that I might be restored to you soon, it seems like he was a part of that community, a part of that assembly, a part of that church at one point in time. He's asking them to pray. I urge you, it's, it's a serious prayer request. We see remark number one here seems to be a very general prayer request. Pray for us. Where verse 19 of Hebrews 13 seems to be a very specific prayer request. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. So it's very possible this person who is writing could be in prison himself and may not be in prison because if you look at verse 23, the writer says, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. So he's probably not in prison, the writer, because he's awaiting Timothy to get to wherever he is. And then once Timothy gets to wherever he is, then together they were going to journey to this assembly, this community, this area of where this letter was being sent, and they were going to, to be with this group of people. They were going to be restored or to rejoin this group of people. So this pray for us is a general prayer request for Mark number one. The writer probably knew those whom he was writing to. They knew him. They would have known who they were praying for, both as a group and the individual writer. When he says, I, I particularly urge, they knew who the I was. They knew who the us were, whereas we don't know. We, we can make some guesses that it very well could have been Paul, and we'll look at that next week to see if it possibly could have been Paul being the I in these sets of verses, and, and possibly who are the us that may have been with Paul. 
But he says, I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. And then verse 23, I want you to know that our brother Timothy, so the group that is receiving the letter not only knew who the us were, they not only knew who the I was, but they also knew Timothy. So there was some real relationships between the writer of Hebrews and those who are receiving the letter. It says, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released, probably from prison. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. And it sure would be nice if we knew when he arrives soon, or if he arrives soon, where would he be arriving to? And that's the great unknown. Nobody really knows. We can make some guesses, but no one really knows who the I is. No one really knows where this letter was written from, but it's fun to, to study, to see. Look in verse 24 of Hebrews 13. The writer says, greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people or all the saints. Those from Italy send you their greetings. So again, the writer knew the leaders, it seems like, and it says, greet all the saints. Greet everyone in the assembly. Greet everyone in the church. I look forward to Timothy coming and he and I joining together and being restored and rejoining the community back in whatever the city and area they were in. So there was there was a real relationship between the writer and those who were receiving this letter. And I think they were caretakers of the letter. They were stewards of the letter. I see Hebrews as a teaching or as education to, to all of Jewish people, wanting to educate them about the New Testament of grace, wanting to establish people in the New Testament of grace so they could experience all that God had done for them in Christ. I think those who were the caretakers of the letters are those whom the letters were being sent to. And of course, copies were made of the letters and sent all, all over the place. All right. So we're examining the nine concluded remarks of the writer of Hebrews. And we've looked in Hebrews 13, 18. It says, pray for us. And then it says, we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. So here's the word we. So again, it's, it's the writer and his team. I think it's a missionary team. I think it's a, a team of people who are traveling, who are taking the New Testament of grace on the road, so to speak. They are going into cities. They are communicating the New Testament of grace. They are starting New Testament grace-based churches. And in these cities that they go into, the writer says, we're sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. A clear conscience. When I think about our conscience, our conscience is, is the feelings within us that alert us to whether what we have done or said was right or wrong, good or bad, hurtful or harmful. It's, it's what's in us that says, yeah, that was the right thing to do. Or, Brad, that probably wasn't something you should have said or a way that you should have acted. When you do a study on the word conscience, it's used about 29 times in the scriptures. 
I think starting with John chapter eight, I believe through first or second Peter, it's used about 29 times. The majority of the use of the word conscience is by Paul. 20 times apart from the book of Hebrews, if he wrote the book of Hebrews, I think it's around 24 times Paul would have used the word conscience. So that was one of the words that would have been very familiar to Paul and used frequently by Paul's this word conscience. When Paul and his missionary team laid their head down to rest at night, they had a clear conscience, meaning that throughout the day, their goal was to treat people correctly, treat people kindly, gracefully, to have right relationships with people, to do right toward people. And, and when they laid their head down, they could look back in that day and said, you know, I, I have a clear conscience. An unclear conscience is a conscience where those feelings within us signal that well, what I said to him really wasn't what I should have said. What I, what I did isn't something I, I should have done. And, 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 and God has given us the gift of conscience. Everybody has the gift of conscience. Uh, Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 2. I think conscience is, is the knowledge of good and evil that we see in Genesis. If you eat of the tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil conscience, the ability to discern within what is right and what is wrong. And then our conscience will alert us to whether what we did was right or what we did was wrong. And if our conscience isn't clear, then that's the alert that what we said, what we did, how we acted, how we behaved really wasn't right. And so what do we do with an unclear conscience? Well, I think we have to really give ourselves grace we can't let an unclear conscience bring condemnation. That's not the purpose of the conscience. God hasn't given us the conscience so that we will live in a state of condemning ourselves. He's really given us the conscience as an awareness of right or wrong. And somebody that doesn't have a conscience, the Bible talks about a conscience seared as with a hot iron means their conscience isn't working. So you take a person whose conscience is no longer working, that person is capable of doing anything and having no feelings about what they did, whether it was right or wrong. So the conscience is a gift from God that is, is a guide. It guides us into what is right. It, it signals to us when we do something wrong. And we'll hear people say, listen to your conscience and it'll guide you, it'll lead you, it'll show you what's right and wrong. It will signal to you when you did something wrong. It'll show you when you did something right. And when we discover that we did something wrong and our conscience signals to us that we did something wrong, we don't want to live in a state of condemnation because of it, but we do want to seek to maybe make amends to the person to whom we did something or said something or behaved in a way that was inappropriate. I was having a conversation today with someone. In our conversation, you could tell that this person's conscience really began to signal to him that there was something that he should have done that he failed to do. He allowed this to bring condemnation upon him. 
He allowed it to bring shame upon him. He really began to feel very bad about himself because he didn't do what he should should have done. Rather than allowing our conscience to bring condemnation to us, I think God gives the conscience so that it can bring transformation to us. When we are alerted to something we didn't do or should have done and we're bothered by it internally, that can bring change to us. I need to make some changes. I need to learn how to communicate better. I I don't need to overreact so quickly. I need to really guard my emotions and, and guard my attitude when I'm around people or learn how to communicate more effectively or learn how to listen better. So our conscience, rather than being something that brings us into a state of condemnation, it really can be something that God uses to help bring transformation in our lives. And so when the writer of Hebrews says we're sure that we have a clear conscience, they could lay their head on their bed or wherever they slept at night, knowing that throughout the day they had done the right thing. And when they woke up in the morning, they can know that during the night we, we did the right thing. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. Honorably in every way. Honorably here means doing good, living right, moral lifestyle, being a loving person, being a kind person, commendable, honorable person in every way. So in every place and to every person, the writer of Hebrews and and the ministry team he was with had a clear conscience in how they lived. They could look back and say, you know, we did the right thing today. We, we live right today. We treated people correctly today. And not from a sense of arrogance or a sense of pride, but just from a sense of knowing that, boy, I live right today. That, that's a good feeling that we can have when we lay our head on our pillows at night and wake up in the morning. That, that's, that's a good feeling to know I've done the right thing during the day and at night and and in every way, in every place, to every person. We see Paul writing about the conscience in 2 Corinthians 1.12. And this is this one of about 20 times Paul uses this word conscience. He says, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves... So there's the conscience. The conscience signals to us from within about our conduct, about our behavior, about our speech, about our attitude, about our actions. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves, behaved in a way, conducted ourselves in the world. That's that's the world of unbelievers. That we have conducted ourselves in the world And especially in relation to you, that's believers, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God, not in worldly wisdom, but in the grace of God. And so I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying and what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 1.12, I think one of the reasons Paul brings this up in 2 Corinthians 1.12, as well as the writer of Hebrews, is Paul wanted to be a model for the believers that he was around. He wanted to be an example of a person who lived right and who loved people. 
in addition, he wanted to be a magnet to the unbeliever so that how he lived would be different than those around him so that people would see there's something different about Paul. It's, it's like with Jesus. Jesus's lifestyle was a model to those who followed him. Paul points out Jesus as a model to look up to as far as behavior and, and living in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, you were taught in accordance with Christ, about Christ, and he's talking about behavior, the model that Jesus demonstrated in his moral lifestyle and his loving lifestyle. So not only was Jesus a model, but Jesus was a magnet to the unbeliever. There was something about Jesus that was so different in how he treated people, how he loved people, his kindness, his goodness, his humility, his gentleness that drew the unbeliever to him. And I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. That's what Paul's getting at is when we lay our head on our pillows at night, we want to look back through the day and, and be able to say that, well, I live right today. I was a good model for my children. I was a good model for my students. I was a good model for those who I work around. But also maybe I was a magnet to the unbeliever that that they felt a depth of love from me that they haven't felt from others. They felt kindness from me and gentleness that, that they noticed that there's something in me and that quality would be grace. There's something in me that's so different that they want to know more about it. They're attracted to the grace of the Lord Jesus within us. And I think that's what Paul's referring to in 2 Corinthians 1.12 and what the writer of Hebrews is referring to in Hebrews 13.18. Paul also writes about the conscience in Thessalonians 1, 5, 2, 10, Romans 14. If any of you guys ever want to look at how many times is a certain word used, I use Blue Letter Bible all the time. So I just went in, I put in the word conscience. You can filter that word through the NIV, through the New King James Version, through the King James Version, whatever translation, it'll show you how many times that word is used in each book of the Bible depending on what, upon the translation. And it may not be always 100% accurate because sometimes translations will insert a word into their, their translation, but that word really isn't in the Greek manuscripts. So you have to double check it. So that's why a lot of times I'll say around 28 times or around 27 times, I could go and find out exactly how many times, but that would take a lot of, a lot of time to do that but I know it's very, very close to those times. So if that's something you ever wanted to do is do a word search. Blue Letter Bible is how I do that. And then I do most of my studies on uh, Bible Hub. All right, so we're looking at nine remarks that the writer of Hebrews concludes with. We've looked at remark number one, pray for us. Remark number two, we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. Hebrews 13, 19 is where we get remark number three. We've looked at this earlier. The writer says, I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. And again, this is the second prayer request. The first one was a very general pray for us. And this seems to be a very specific one. I really want to be reunited with you guys. I want to be restored. I want to come to your city. I want to come to your community. I want to come to your assembly. There's something preventing me from getting there, possibly, he may be saying. I ask that you would pray 
so that whatever this obstacle is preventing me from getting to you could be removed. And when Timothy comes, I'll be able to join Timothy and he and I together will be able to, to come visit you and be restored and rejoined with you. All right, well, let's look at concluding remark number four, Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. We looked at Hebrews 13, 20 pretty in-depthly in Hebrews teaching number 62. So I'm not going to go back through Hebrews chapter uh, 13, verse 20. We're going to focus more in on verse 21. Remark number four, Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, this word equip in remark number four, Hebrews 13, 21, to me, that's a very, very poor translation. If you look in Matthew 4, 21, Mark 4, 19, the word is translated mend like mending of nets. If you look in 1 Corinthians 1.10, it's translated fitted or joined together. If you look in Hebrews 11.3, it's translated formed or fashioned together when, when God formed the universe. So this word equipped, to me, it's not the right translation of the Greek word here. If you do a study on this Greek word, you see that translation is that of mend, fashion, or form, which then fits better into the, the context of these verses. Now may the God of peace mend you together, is to me what he's saying here. Fashion you together, form you together, unite you together, bring you into harmony with one another. It's very possible that this Jewish assembly that he's writing to, and, and remember back in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So he's writing to a Jewish assembly and he's encouraging those who are receiving the letter to make sure they stay together, to encourage each other, to exhort one another so that they can be established more fully and in the New Testament of grace so they can be inspired to do good works and, and loving actions and in the community and in the assembly. And so if you can imagine, if you could, could wrap your mind around being a Jew in AD 65 or somewhere around AD 65, who had been a part of a local synagogue for, for your entire life. In this local synagogue, you learn that a Messiah is coming, a Christ is coming. You learned all the scriptures from Daniel chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, Zechariah chapter 9, Micah 5, 2 through 5, that a Christ is coming, a Messiah is coming. You learn Isaiah 53, that this Messiah is going to justify many. He's going to be led like, like a sheep to the slaughter. He's going to die for the sins of people. He's going to justify many. He's going to rise from the dead all these prophecies in Jewish scripture. And, and you grow up in a synagogue as a child, and you continue to stay in that synagogue as an adult, and you become aware of this person named Jesus. 
and somebody begins to share with you that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ, which is why John wrote the entire book of John. John wrote the book of John. If you look at the very end of John, it's either the last chapter or maybe the next to the last chapter. He says, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So the reason John wrote the book of John was so that the reader would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ of the Jewish scriptures. So let's say you're in a synagogue, 8065, 8064, 63. Somebody presents to you the message that Jesus is the Christ which is what Paul did in the book of Acts. We see Apollos doing it in Acts chapter 18. We see Paul doing it throughout the book of Acts. He would go into these synagogues and he would reason with them from the Jewish scriptures, seeking to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Christ. What does a person do who's in that synagogue who comes to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? He is the Christ. Well, he's not going to be welcome in that synagogue probably anymore. You look in Jesus's boyhood synagogue, Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes into his boyhood synagogue, and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, I believe. And after he reads from Isaiah 61, he says, This scripture is fulfilled today in your presence. I am the one whom Isaiah 61 said was coming. I am him. And the people said, how could Jesus be the Messiah? How could he be the Christ? Isn't this the son of Mary and Joseph? He can't be the Messiah. And then they try to throw him off the cliff. So the synagogue was not a safe place to be, not even for Jesus. They tried to murder Jesus in his local synagogue, Luke chapter 4, by throwing him off a cliff. So if you came to believe in Jesus in your local synagogue, your life was on the line, could very easily die for your belief. We see Paul dragging people out of the synagogues in the book of early chapters of the book of Acts. He testifies about it in the later chapters of the book of Acts, that anybody who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, their life was in danger of being taken away from them. Their freedom was in danger of being taken away from them. They were in danger of losing any source of income that they had to support their families. So where would these believers go? They weren't welcome in their local synagogue. Well, they would have established a new assembly, a new group, a new church. And that's who this writer of Hebrews is writing to. He's writing to a community of believers in Jesus as the Messiah. They believe in that he is the Christ. They believe he established the New Testament of grace that Jeremiah said was coming. More than likely, they've left their synagogues that they had been a part of for years, and they formed an entirely new community, a new assembly, a new church family, a new gathering. That's all the word church means in the Greek language. It simply means a gathering, an assembling together. And so I think this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying in verse 21. Now may the God of peace fashion you together in peaceful relationships. Yes, I know you come from different synagogues. Yes, I know you come from different parts of town and different regions and areas. But what's drawing you together is a common belief that Jesus is the Christ 
a common belief in his work on the cross, a common belief in the blood of the eternal covenant, a common belief in the resurrection, a common belief that he is the great shepherd the Jewish scriptures talk about. And now may you be formed and fashioned together in unity. To me, it's what Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 3, that the Jew and Gentile coming together as one new race, one new family, one new group together in Christ and through what Christ had done for them, the commonality that they had in Christ. In verse 21 of Hebrews chapter 13, may the God of peace form you, fashion you, mend you together with everything good for doing his will. Now the question is, what is the everything good? Because what's going to mend them together? What's going to form them? What's going to fashion them? What's going to unite them together is everything good. So then the question is, well, what's the good that's going to bring them together? Well, when you do a word search on the word good in the book of Hebrews, it's used 12 times or about 12 times. It's used in Hebrews 5.14, Hebrews 6.5, Hebrews 9.11, Hebrews 10.1, Hebrews 10.24, Hebrews 11.2, and 12 and 39, Hebrews 13.9, 16, 18, and 21. So it's really been a common word for the, for the writer of Hebrews all the way through the book of Hebrews. And what I want us to do just for a few minutes is take a look at this word good as the writer of Hebrews has already used it in Hebrews, because then I think we will get an understanding of what is everything good that's going to mend these people together from these different synagogues and fashion and form them together so that they can do the will of God in their community and during their generation. Hebrews 5.14 says this, but solid food is for the mature. Solid food in Hebrews 5.14 is referring to the new covenant of grace. It's the teaching about righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, rather than righteousness that comes by following the law. Paul said in Philippians, he said, as far as righteousness by the law, I was good, but in reality, I was unrighteous. My righteousness is now in the person of Christ. Faith in Christ is how I'm righteous. And he expounds on righteousness in Romans. Solid food is the teaching that righteousness comes by faith in Jesus and not by following the law. Solid food is for the mature. The immature legalist cannot handle the teaching of righteousness by faith apart from works. The legalist always wants to add some type of work to it, some type of discipline to it, so, something that somebody has to do to be close to God, to remove that sin that might be disrupting their fellowship with God. The legalist is very immature, may have been a believer for many years, may know all the books of the Bible, may can recite them from, from Genesis to Revelation. But when it comes to truly understanding what the New Testament is, not books, but the blood of Christ, and that righteousness and closeness with God and forgiveness is secured eternally through faith in Jesus, and there's not categories of forgiveness, there's not categories of sanctification, 
that Jesus through his blood did it all for us. That's a mature message that the immature legalists certainly cannot handle. And many of the Jewish people could not handle. They were immature. They were elementary in their minds, so to speak. They, they could not handle the teaching that through faith in Jesus is how righteousness was received. They still had an elementary mindset. Paul writes about that in Galatians 4. He, he calls them infants, this elementary mindset of the religious mind that wants to try to earn or merit a right standing with God or closeness to God by some kind of religious activity, morality, discipline, work, something, formula. But the mature mind that has been matured in the truths of Scripture that sees it, that they get it. That's the solid food of the new covenant of grace. Remember Jesus said, eat of, of my body, drink of my blood. That's the solid food there. It's the solid food of the new covenant of grace. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. What's he referring to there? That after a person has been introduced to the new covenant of grace, have been educated about the new covenant of grace, they're beginning to understand it. They're beginning to see, oh, okay, the New Testament's not about 27 books. It's about the blood of one person. The Old Testament is not about 39 books. It's about the blood of animals that can never forgive sins. But the New Testament is about the blood of Christ that has completely forgiven sins. Once a person sees that message and is beginning to relate to God through that truth of the new covenant of grace, consistently using that message to relate to God, using those truths to relate to God, then they can begin to distinguish pretty quickly between good teaching and bad teaching. They can spot legalism very quickly. One of the things people have told me over the years, and I've mentioned it on this study, I think, is that after they become established in this New Testament of grace teaching, they cannot listen to another sermon the same way the rest of their lives. And that's a good thing. What's happened is they've been trained through this New Testament of grace message. They've validated this message in their own studies. They haven't taken my word for it. They've gone into scripture. They've validated it. And now they're able to spot pretty quickly if the pastor truly understands scripture. They can distinguish good teaching from evil teaching or bad teaching very, very quickly. So I, the, the good is what I, I want us to focus on here. The good is the solid food of the New Testament of grace. That's the good. Full forgiveness of sins, complete cleansing of sins, permanent purification from sins, eternal forgiveness so that we can be eternally close to God with no fear of our closeness with God being disrupted or being out of fellowship with God, or our fellowship with God, or closest with God being blocked. All right, Hebrews 9, 11, as we look at this word good. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, what are the good things? It's the good things of the new covenant of grace. What are those good things? Eternal forgiveness in Christ, eternal righteousness, eternal cleansing of sins, eternal purification from sins, and eternal closeness with God. 
that have nothing to do with us and only has everything to do with Christ. And we're the recipient of the good things by faith. They're here. They, they've come, the writer is saying. The good things that Jeremiah said was coming in Jeremiah 31 through 34, they're here. The good things of Isaiah 53, they're here. And now by faith, we receive the good things of grace. We receive forgiveness and righteousness and innocence and justification and closeness with God. And it's all by faith and not by any works or disciplines or formulas. It's all by faith, trust, belief. All right, Hebrews 10.1 says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So the law were pictures of the coming person of Jesus. And we looked at that in Hebrews numbers 28 through number 37 in our teachings. And we saw how the tabernacle and all the furnishings of the tabernacle and the sacrifices, they all were pictures of the coming of Jesus. They were shadows and the shadows aren't real. Jesus is the reality of what the Old Testament was shadowing. Jesus was the animal sacrifice. It was his blood. Jesus was the priest doing this sacrificing. The altar outside the temple is the cross. So we looked at all these pieces of furniture and the different roles of the priests. We saw how Jesus is the real substance. He, he, he is what those were shadowing. Mainly what I want us to focus in on here is the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Again, the good things are eternal forgiveness, eternal righteousness, eternal purification from sins and eternal cleansing from sins and eternal closeness with God that no sin can separate us from God. No sins can cause us to be out of fellowship with God because the blood of Jesus secures our closeness, secures our forgiveness, secures our righteousness with God. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. There's the word good, good deeds, acts of grace, acts of kindness toward people. Not giving up meeting together, again, in this Jewish assembly, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another daily and all the more, as you see the day approaching, the, the day would have been the belief of the early church that they were literally expecting the return of Jesus any moment. You see that in Paul's writings. You see that in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10.37, this quick coming of Jesus they were expecting. So back to Hebrews 13, 20 through 21, it says, May the God of peace mend you together with everything good. So we're looking at what is the good that will mend them together. Look in Hebrews 13, 9 through 10. He uses this word good. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Now, strange teaching in the book of Hebrews would have been a teaching that was in opposition or in conflict with the new covenant of grace. A strange teaching would have been there's something you have to do to be forgiven. There's something you have to do to maintain fellowship with God. There's something you have to do to be close to God. There's a discipline you have to follow. There's a formula you have to implement. There's a work that you have to do. There, there's something you have to adhere to. There's an experience you have to have. There's something more than just Jesus. 
would be a strange teaching. It, it could be a mixture of Jesus and something, the mixture of grace and something. That would be a strange teaching. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. We can spot strange teachings when we see this new covenant of grace in its fullness. We can, we can spot immediately that that's just a foreign teaching to the new covenant of grace. That teaching doesn't belong within the new covenant of grace. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Here's the word. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. That's everything God has done for us in Christ. Can easily say it's good for our hearts to be strengthened by the knowledge that we are eternally forgiven, that we are eternally righteous, that we are eternally innocent of sins, that we are eternally purified from all sins and cleansed from all sins, and we are eternally close to God. That strengthening of our hearts internally and not by eating ceremonial foods. That's the law of Moses. And you could put, you could fill in a blank here. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by draw the blank. Whatever would go in there, if it's not Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross, then if it's Jesus plus something, then that's weakening us. And then it goes on to say, which is no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar. That's the cross. That's the good thing of, of grace eternal forgiveness and righteousness and purification and cleansing from sins, eternal closeness. We have an altar from which those who minister, that's the priest at the tabernacle, have no right to eat or, when we looked at the Greek several weeks ago, have no authority over us. And I explained that in a previous teaching. All right, we're looking at this word good, Hebrews 13, 16. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. We looked at that verse in a previous teaching as well. Good here is acts of unmerited kindness to people, acts of grace to people. Jesus used this word, do good to those who harm you. Pray for your enemies, do good to those who harm you. It's the same idea here in, in Hebrews 13, 16. So this brings us back to the word good. Now may the God of peace mend you, form you, fashion you together with everything good. So what's the good? What is it that would fashion them together, form them together, bring them into unity? It's, it's sharing together in what God has done for them in Christ, sharing together in this new covenant of grace, eating together of this new covenant of grace, this commonality that existed between them where they all knew that their sins were eternally forgiven. They were all eternally righteous. Their sins were eternally purified by Christ. They were eternally close to God. That knowledge of the new covenant, being educated in the New Testament of grace, being established in the New Testament of grace, and then experiencing the New Testament of grace together is what would inform them, fashion them, mend them together. For what reason? We know how they would be mended together for doing his will. That's it. The will of God for this assembly flowed out of them being fashioned together with the new covenant of grace. And as they were fashioned together with the new covenant of grace, then the will of God would flow from within them, through them, into the community. The will of God 
we see in Matthew 26, 26 through 42, we see it in Hebrews 9, 16 through 17 and 10, 1 through 20, where it talks about the will of God was the establishment of the New Testament of grace. And again, those verses are Matthew 26, 26 through 42, when Jesus said, I've come to do your will, Father. And that will was the cup, and that cup was the cup of the new covenant where he would pour out his blood for the sins and the forgiveness of people. We see the will of God in Hebrews 9, 16 through 17, and 10, 1 through 20. The will of God is the New Testament of grace. So they would be formed together, fashioned together by the good things of the new covenant of grace. They would do good within their community to one another, within their assembly to one another, within their community to the unbelievers, within their assembly to each other, would form and fashion them together even more so that they would fulfill the will of God as far as that local community of believers went. And we have to believe that 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 will was the teaching of the new covenant of grace within that assembly, and then reaching out into the community with this new testament of grace and helping others come to know all that God had done for them in Christ. All right, let's continue in Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. It says, may the God of peace equip you, that's fashion form, mend you together with every good thing, that's the new covenant of grace, and that's acts of grace in their doing good to each other and those outside of their assembly. With everything good for doing his will, the, the teaching of the new covenant of grace, the reaching people with the new covenant of grace. And may he work in us, may God, this God of peace, work in us. The work in us here means produce within us, bear within us, transform us from within what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. So as they're formed together, as they're mended together, as they're fashioned together with this new covenant of grace, that God then would work within them, both individually and corporately, what was pleasing to him. Paul uses this word pleasing in many of, of his writings, talking about behavior. We, we want our, our behavior to be pleasing to God, our attitudes, our actions, how we treat one another. That could be part of this pleasing as well as, as this community of believers would be pleasing to God and how they're related to one another, how they related to those outside of the community as well through Jesus. And notice it's all through Jesus, the fashioning, the forming, the will, working within what is pleasing to him through Jesus. And, and he's talking about the New Testament of grace here. That's what this entire book is about. Through Jesus, this New Testament of grace came. Jesus is the mediator of a New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8. He brings God and humanity together by removing sin, and, and through Jesus, you're fashioned together. Through Jesus, in this New Testament of grace, you're going to see God's will flourish and, and flow in you and flow through you and out of you, and it's going to be pleasing to God. To whom be glory forever and ever. Glory here, I want us to take a look at, at glory. What, what is glory? 2 Corinthians 4.15, Paul uses this word glory. All this is for your benefit, so the grace of God that is reaching more and more people may result in thanksgiving overflowing to the glory of God. The glory of God is seeing the greatness of God. 
When a person sees the greatness of God, they stand in awe of God. When a person sees the greatness of God, they're amazed by God. So the question is, how does a person see the greatness of God so that they stand in awe of God and are amazed by God? Well, Paul says right here, all this is for your benefit. So the grace of God that is reaching more and more people may result in thanksgiving overflowing to the glory of God. What is it that caused people to see the greatness of God so that they're awed by God and amazed by God? It's the grace of God that was reaching them. And the grace of God in 2 Corinthians 4.15 is the new covenant of grace. This, this whole context starts in 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul says God has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. And they were taking this New Testament message that he really expounds on in 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 18, and then he picks back up and really expounds on it more in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. That's the meat or the heart of the new covenant. The rest of it is how he delivered that message, which we find in 2 Corinthians 4, 15. When people see the grace of God, when people see the New Testament of grace, when people see that God was in Christ reconciling the world, not counting their sins against them, where Jesus took our sinfulness and now he offers us his righteousness as a gift. When people see the grace of God, they see the greatness of God. And when they see the greatness of God, it overflows to the glory of God, where we stand back in awe and we're amazed at how graceful God is, how good God is, that he loves us so much and he wants to be in relationship with us, that he stepped into this world in Christ and he goes to the cross and he takes the sin of the world upon himself, our sinfulness, and now he offers us his righteousness. That is an amazing God that causes us to stand back and, and be in awe of a God, the creator of the universe, who became one of us so that he can know each of us. That's an amazing, amazing God. Paul writes about the glory of God in Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him, that's God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power. What is that power in Ephesians? It's the power of the gospel of grace that he's mentioned earlier, and it's the power of the love of Christ within that he had mentioned in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. That's the power. Now to God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power of his grace at work within us, that's what God has done for us in Christ, complete forgiveness. We see that in Ephesians 1, 6 through 8. According to his power, the love of Christ in us, that is at work within us, to him be glory, that people would see the greatness of God through the church, through the assembly. You see that here? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Who's the us? The us is the assembly in Ephesus. The us is the church. The us is, is the gathering of grace believers that to him be glory in the church, in the gathering, in the assembly. The power of the church is the gospel of grace in Ephesians. The power of, of God in that church is the love of Christ in Ephesians. That when a group of people, whether it's five people, 50 or 50,000, are fashioned together or formed together in unity in this gospel of grace, in this New Testament of grace, where the, 
the pastor gets it and the associate pastor gets it and the music pastor gets it and the Sunday school teachers get it and the youth minister gets it and the children's minister gets it. And, and the people working out as parking attendants, they get it. And the people welcoming others to coming into the, the church gathering, they get it. When the gathering gets grace, people see the glory of God. They see the greatness of God in that church. And there's something about that church that begins to attract people to it, just like Jesus attracted unbelievers to him. And that's what Paul's referring to in Ephesians. I think it's also what the writer of Hebrews is referring to as well when he talks about glory forever and ever and ever. Well, let's return to the nine concluding remarks in Hebrews. This is Hebrews 13, 22, remark number five, brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. For in fact, I've written to you quite briefly. What a lot of commentators and people teaching through Hebrews will do when they see that word brief, briefly, they, they kind of chuckle. Huh. The writer of Hebrews, this isn't a brief letter, they will say. This is a long letter. This is a long exhortation. This is 13 chapters, very, very detailed. There's nothing brief or short or a few words in this. Well, I think they miss something here. And I think they miss what the concordant New Testament picks up on. None of the other translations pick up on it. There's only one that picks up on it, and it's the Concordant New Testament translation. It's a literal translation. It's the only translation that translates Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 correctly. When it says, forgiving one another just as God has forgiven us, the word forgiven is not in the Greek there. All the other translations put forgiveness in Ephesians 4, 31. It's having grace upon each other just as God in Christ has had grace upon us which a part of that is forgiveness, but the Greek word used in Ephesians 4.31 is not the word for forgiveness, it's the word for grace, it's charis. The Concordant New Testament is the only translation that picks up and uses that correctly. It's the only one that uses it correctly here in Hebrews 13.22, possibly correctly. The Concordant New Testament, I put the link in the notes if you want to go to it, uses the word bits not few words or briefly, which is what the other translations use. Here's how the concordant New Testament translates Hebrews 13, 22. Now I am entreating you, brethren, bear with the word of entreaty, for I write the epistle to you by bits also. Bits, meaning small pieces, small parts, which then possibly leads us to think that rather than the writer of Hebrews writing this 13 chapter, and it wasn't written in chapters and verses anyway, it comes to us that way so that we can communicate with each other about it. Possibly it was short teachings. It, it, it was like a pastor having a series of messages about one topic over the course of 10 weeks. And so these were short teachings Hebrews chapter 1 would have been a teaching about Jesus being the Son of God. Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus being the teaching of the Son of Man. And so they would have been short bits, short parts that came to this church bit by bit or piece by piece. I don't know. Nobody knows because we weren't there. But that's just an interesting perspective to have. All right, let's continue in Hebrews 13, 23. This is remark number 6. Uh, the writer says, I want you to know that our brother Timothy, Timothy comes on the scene of Scripture in Acts 16. 
He became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. We can read about that in 1 Timothy 1.3. Some of the early historical writers put Timothy in Ephesus as the pastor of that church. This remark number six, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. That's more than likely from prison, whether it was prison in Ephesus, it doesn't say. But the writer of Hebrews was confident, or at least was hoping, that Timothy would arrive soon so that when he did come to wherever uh, the writer was, then they would join together and go to the assembly of those who are receiving this letter. Could have been around the time of AD 64. Next week, we're going to put some, some times and dates more on on the letter of Hebrews and Paul and Timothy and and see if there's a, a connection, if we can connect the dots to see if Paul very well may have written this letter and where would he have written this letter from. All right, Hebrews 13, 24, remark number seven, greet all your leaders and all of the Lord's people. So the writer knew the leaders. That's why he could say in uh, Hebrews 13, 17, to put yourself under the leadership of these leaders, because I know that these leaders understand the New Testament of grace. Therefore, put yourself underneath their leadership because they're going to help protect you from the legalists who are out there, from the Judaizers who are out there, from the Christ deniers who are out there. Put yourself under their leadership because they're going to educate you about everything Jesus did for you at the cross. They're going to educate you about eternal forgiveness and eternal righteousness, eternal fellowship with God, everything that the writer has written about in Hebrews those leaders would have adhered to, they would have understood, and they were educating that Jewish community about the truths of the new covenant. That's why the writer of Hebrews can say, put yourself underneath their leadership. It's not a blanket application for all churches and all leaders and all believers for all generations. Put yourself under the leadership of your church. That's ripping this right out of context, out of its historical writing, and it's ignoring the historical writing and what the author and the audience, how they would have understood that. Remark 7, greet all your leaders. He refers to leaders in 13.7. That's ones who had previously died, more than likely. Those in 13.17 were the current leaders of that assembly. Greet all of your leaders and all the Lord's people. That should be the saints. Greet all the Lord's saints. The NIV uses the Lord's people. Most translations use the word saints, and that is the accurate translation. So what is a saint? Greet all the saints. Saint is a holy one. A saint is one whose the blood of Christ has purified them from all sins, cleansed them from all sins. They've been made righteous and innocent before God because of the blood of Christ. They are holy in their identity. Before coming to Christ as an unbeliever, they, their identity was sinner, Romans 5.8. After coming to faith in Jesus, their identity is saint. They moved from being an, an unholy one to a holy one an unrighteous one to a righteous one, an uncleansed one to a cleansed one, an unpurified one to a purified one. That's what the word saint is. The word saint is used 60 times. Most of these times are by Paul, where he's identifying believers as saints. That's our identity. Never are we referred to as sinners saved by grace. Not one time is a believer in the scriptures referred to as a sinner saved by grace. Over 60 times, we are always referred to as saints, holy ones, forgiven ones, righteous ones, innocent ones. So that's what the writer of Hebrews says here. Greet all your leaders and greet all the saints. can read about the holy ones or the saints, same Greek word in Hebrews 10.10, Hebrews 10.14, and in Hebrews 13.12, where the blood of Christ has made us 
holy. All right, let's wrap this up real quick. Hebrews 13, 24 is remark number eight. Those from Italy send you their greetings. This is interesting. There's only two possible explanations, I think, for this verse. Explanation number one is the writer is in Italy and is sending greetings from the Italian believers from Italy. An example of this could be in Acts 27, we see that Paul sailed to Italy. Paul is imprisoned in Rome, in Italy. It's very possible that Paul is writing this letter from Italy. He's surrounded by Italians, and he's sending greetings from Italy, writing from Italy to wherever this letter is going. That's a possibility. There's another explanation is the writer is not in Italy at all. But the writer is with a group of Italian believers who've traveled from Italy to another city in the Roman Empire where the writer was at the time he wrote Hebrews. An example of this would be in Acts 18, 1 through 4, with Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla, who are in Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla are from Italy. They're not in Italy. They're in Corinth. Here's what Acts 18, 1 through 4 says. After this, Paul then left Athens and went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So people from Italy, believers, were scattered all over the Roman Empire because of that order. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So that's a possibility as well on what Hebrews 13.24 means. And then the final concluding remark, Hebrews 13.25 of Hebrews, grace be with you all. I don't think that is a general goodbye that the writer is using here. I think he specifically means with intent to say grace be with you all. He's really wanting to move out of this letter, reminding them it's not the law of Moses. It's not the Old Testament of law that is with you. It's not the law be with you all. Disciplines be with you all. Formulas be with you all. It's grace. And we've seen that grace in Hebrews is what Jesus has done for us. It begins with Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, the grace of God, where Jesus died the death for everyone. That's it, grace. What God has done for you in Christ, may the awareness and the realization that you are forgiven and righteous and eternally close to God and purified from all sins, may that be with you everywhere you go. Just the awareness and the realization that you live in grace and and you're not under any type of works-based, law-based, discipline-based system.